Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, So uh, some of you may have seen today that I wrote and posted on LinkedIn that today is International uh, Imposter Syndrome Awareness Day. And uh, I also mentioned that when this conversation was originally planned uh, some months ago, um, I didn't know that the date that I had proposed was just that. And so there's some people who would say there's no such thing as a coincidence. But um, today, what is not a coincidence, but very much intentional, um, is the fact that I've invited um, Dr. Valerie Young, who is considered the foremost expert on imposter syndrome and actually is the co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute. Um, she's done talks and um, has been cited around the world in countless uh, international uh, magazines and journals, Time, Newsweek, and on and on, uh, Wall Street Journal, and so is really recognized as the foremost expert. And so, uh, welcome, Valerie. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Dr. Perkins. Well, um, I'm excited to have you um, because I'm, I'm going to tell you, honestly, I've, I've heard, and I'm sure a lot of people that are kind of listening in have also heard uh, this, you know, this term, imposter syndrome, just kind of creep more and more into everyday conversations, more so in the last, say, five to ten years or, or, or less, just more and more. I never heard of that. And then you, you would hear, at least for me, I would hear in um, circles of, of educators, circles of, of researchers, this phenomenon. And, and so um, when I, I heard you um, speak and I said, I would love to have a conversation with her and thank you uh, for being willing to come on and talk with me. Um, so first, I, you know, I have read so much about you and, you know, your books, you have award-winning books. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background, um, you know, how you got interested in this. I'm sure there's got to be a great story behind what, how you got started with um, your work in imposter syndrome. Yeah, thank you again for having me, uh, Dr. Perkins. Yeah, I really kind of stumbled into it, honestly. I, I, was, I was a doctoral student at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst in education, in the, what was, it was called the School of Education back then. I think it's the College of Education now. And by the way, I come from an uh, academic family. My, my mother also worked at the university as a second shift janitor. My uncle Buddy was a janitor. My aunt was a secretary. So as you can tell, you can tell long, mm-hmm. long lineage in, in academia, but just mm-hmm. on the staffing side. So I was sitting in a class one day, and somebody brought in the paper by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Those are the two psychologists who first coined the, the term the imposter phenomenon. Uh, and, and she started describing 
from this paper, the, the findings that a lot of bright, capable, competent people felt like they were fooling folks and that they were going mm. to be found out. And I just mm-hmm. instantly identified. I was fascinated by the subject. I actually changed the whole focus of my of my uh, doctoral research and decided really? to look more specifically at kind of uh, women's self-limiting patterns and behaviors. In other words, I was interested in what would lead people to feel this way. And at the time, when mm. I say people, at the time, they thought it was kind of something that was pretty specific to, to women. But since yeah. then, you know, it's, we, we know that there are an awful lot of men who feel the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, as as it goes at the university, a lot of times we say, um, it's not really research; it's me search, right? It's not uh, <laughs> yeah. what what you you researching other people. A lot of times we're doing um, it, uh, research that benefits us. So I'm I'm not at all surprised about that. And so, um, so is this is this something? So it's called a a syndrome. So were, were these psychologists that? Uh, piece this together. What, so tell me a little bit about the background. Did they? What, yeah, they, they were two psychologists. Uh, Pauline Clance was a psychology professor at Georgia State University, and Suzanne Imes was a clinical psychologist. And they didn't do actual research. It's kind of a people don't quite understand that. I think often um, what they did it was really it was their observations based on actually majority undergraduates, some graduate students, uh, some faculty, and some staff who they came in contact with in either in one-on-one therapy or, uh, you know, group therapy or, or kind of group kind of group dynamic kind of sessions that they were leading at the university and just started noticing this persistent pattern of dismissing evidence of your abilities and accomplishments and saying, well, it was luck or timing or you know, maybe 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 they're a legacy admission into mm-hmm. the university, uh, but you know, kind of explaining away their their success and their their accomplishments to date, and just and feeling like they were going to be found out. So they gave uh-huh. it a name and wrote it in a paper, and it just like took off. I mean, people just instantly identified, and I think a lot of collective head nodding when they put their paper out. Sure, sure. Well, you know, it sounds like also from everything that I've read that there it's not just kind of the the occasional um self reflection of okay do i have everything i need to be successful am i uh am i am i in the right place doing what i should be doing and do i have the knowledge necessary to get this done it's not the it's not kind of the occasional reflection on where you are but it it sounds like from what i've what I've read that it's something that actually might get in the way and, and, you know, of some people actually pushing themselves. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what, what's the difference between someone just really um, being reflective and someone that might be suffering from imposter syndrome. Yeah. And that's a good question because there are people who are genuinely humble but have mm-hmm. never had imposter feelings. And mm-hmm. so they might have, you know, what I would consider kind of normal self-doubt or normal stepping back and going, wow, I'm really, I'm truly not qualified for this <laughs> opportunity or whatever it might be. And, you know, they, they have a realistic assessment of both their strengths, but also their gaps and their, and their weaknesses. Yeah. Um, and then there's people who have, you know, it's more of a, on the one hand, it's a feeling, right? Imposter is a, is a, is a an experience, it's a feeling around this fear of being found out, that this genuine belief that deep down I'm not really as intelligent, capable, competent, talented as other people seem to to think that I am. 
you know, at the same time, it's not just an interesting self-help topic. Mm-hmm. Feelings lead to behaviors, and, and to your point, Dr. Perkins, that those those behaviors have consequences not just for the individual, whether it's the student or the staff or the faculty member or the employee uh, or the entrepreneur, for that matter, but also for the organization, also for you know for the university or the uh, you know the, the company, because mm-hmm. it, it it manifests in terms of behaviors, and it could be kind of holding back. You know, there's so much focus on imposter syndrome being something that impacts, quote-unquote, high achievers. Yeah. I think it keeps a lot of people from achieving more. Mm. You know, it mm-hmm. pulls us back. Because one way we cope with the anxiety of, of waiting to be found out and, and to manage the anxiety of waiting to be found out is by kind of playing smaller, like holding back, flying under yeah. the radar. Yeah. You know, not speaking up in class, not taking more challenging um, courses, not going for promotions or more challenging opportunities. And that way, you know, it's safer there. For for someone else, it might be chronically overworking, over-preparing. And I don't mean like good old-fashioned hard work, right? We all have to work hard. But this sense that the only reason I'm successful is that I have to work harder than other people because I'm not as, you know, inherently capable, intelligent, um, and so on. You know, for other people, and you see a lot of this on campuses, is chronic procrastination. (laughs) I always tell people, when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation, I had the cleanest house in Northampton, Massachusetts. (laughs) (laughs) I know (laughs) the feeling. I know the feeling. Yeah, and you know, and I always tell people, you know, we we all procrastinate, right? We're hardwired to avoid things that are difficult, not very fun. You know, we don't know where to start. They're big and hard. Where it really matters is when it is going to undermine your major job objectives or, or academic objectives or even life objectives for that matter. And, and can I just give you a quick example of how yeah, procrastination sure. protects us? Sure. Years sure. ago, there was a young woman at a university who wanted to go for this very competitive internship. To get it, she had to complete a very lengthy application process. So she had six months to do it. Let's say it's due June 10th. When do you think she starts it? June 9th, <laughs> gets it in overnight mail. She doesn't no. get the internship. How procrastination yeah. protects us is we can say to ourselves, well, I'm disappointed, yeah. but I'm hardly surprised, you know, because right. I know it didn't right. reflect my best effort. But the, the problem is, the rub is, if she had gotten the internship, she probably wouldn't have felt deserving. She would have felt like, you know, she fooled them again. Yeah. And when I yeah. get there, they're going to figure out I don't really belong here. Oh, yeah. And I... I definitely um, identify with what you're saying where, you know, I, I do, I coach a number of people in education, whether it's principals, superintendents, but also outside of education field. And, and that's something that I find happens a lot. Um, even among people who have been successful, you know, there, there are places and I just go, my goodness, what if you actually believed that you, are where you need to be and you are qualified to be here. Um, and, you know, but one of the things you said, I, I often try to build and develop in the individuals that I coach is a realistic sense of self. Now, there are a number of people who, who I mean, they, they don't have a realistic sense of self where it's inflated. And I, and, and I know it's a bit redundant to say overinflated. I mean, it is definitely inflated sense of self. Um, uh, but I, you know, I, I try to encourage people to, to reach for the stars. I think about in my own case, I've had nothing but people encourage me to stretch. 
And that's, mm-hmm. that's, you know, and, and even sometimes when I'm very, very uncomfortable with that, I never will forget. Um, I was going up for um, tenure at a university early. And, and so I called my mentor who was, who ultimately uh, invited me to come and join faculty at Columbia. But he, he, I said to him, I said, you know, I am, I'm going up for, for tenure early, a year early. Um, you know, one of my colleagues, I never even considered it, but one of my colleagues who's going up um, for tenure is going up for tenure promotion at the same time. And I said, what do you think? And, and his response to me was, if not you, then who? He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. All they can say is no. And so it seems like I've been kind of blessed with those kind of people around me that have mm-hmm. been saying, try. I mean, what, what would it hurt? And sure enough, I tried it, uh, submitted, and got both. So, um, and I would never have tried it if it hadn't been for kind of his encouragement. But I, you know, I know right. that there there are a number of people out there that have this also this mentality of fake it until you make it, and that's that's mm-hmm. not. That's not at all what I encourage because I'm saying, no, nope, yeah. don't fake it. You know, I think, you know, what I always say is act it until you are it. Like act the mm-hmm. part and then right. and, until you get the promotion. But don't fake it. I mean, don't fake being anything. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But, but there are so many people who don't believe they say it's luck. You know, I, um, boy, I was just lucky to be here when they did this or that, when I made the selection or there weren't a lot of qualified people around. Um, Is that something you hear a lot of too? Oh, oh, absolutely. And and I've heard many creative excuses over the years. There was a high-ranking administrator at MIT years ago who was stunned when they hired her. National Search picked her once she got there she found out the hiring committee had come directly from a wine function she mm-hmm. said oh, i get it <laughs> they were drunk right so, okay. yeah, there's yeah. a lot of creativity that can go into, oh, go sure. into these things can, can i comment on, on your story that you told me yeah yeah sure because you know i i love the fact that you said you know wh- you know one of the things going to happen they're really going to give me tenure they're not right so i might right. as well Go for it, like, and if yeah. not you, who, right? And yeah. why not yeah. you, right? Yeah. On the other hand, you know, you might not have gotten tenure. Right. And what happened, you know, I was speaking at University of British Columbia. A young man came up to me afterwards, and he, he leans over and he whispers, I only believe half of what you said. And I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, I'll bite. You know, clearly he wanted to okay. tell me something. Sure. So he's telling me, well, he knows he's an imposter because he failed his qualifying exams at Oxford. Okay. And my response was, that doesn't make you an imposter. That means you failed your qualifying exams at Oxford, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and, and that sucks, but exactly. there's something you could have done differently. If you had to yeah. do it again, what would you have done differently? Did you have the yeah. chance to go back and retake it? I know, you know, in many schools in the U.S., you've got six months to come back and do your oral exam yeah. again. Yeah. You know, so how, how did you deal with it? So it's not that we avoid failure, mistakes, setbacks, and so on. It, it's always how we respond to it, what we do with mm-hmm. it. But for mm-hmm. him, the fact that he had failed – became proof yeah. he was an imposter. Yeah, yeah. And and unfortunately, that's what happens to a lot of people. Now, you mentioned also in the beginning that uh, there were, at least initially when this was introduced, that there were a number of people that thought it applied mostly or only uh, to women. Uh, say a little bit about that. Um, who generally are the groups, even like say at the beginning of this, when people first start recognizing it as a pattern of behavior, 
um, who are the groups that generally, or is there a general um, set of people that that uh, seem to to suffer more than others? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it turns out, Dr. Perkins, if you were raised by humans, you have a much better <laughs> chance of feeling yeah. like an imposter. Because yeah, yeah. sometimes family messages can can come into play. Yeah. You know, if you're the kid who came home with four A's and one B, and your family's only response was, what's that B doing there? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you got a powerful message that the only thing that's acceptable is is perfection. And mm-hmm. and there's many reasons, you know, parent, good parents might push a kid to excel. You know, if, if you have an immigrant family, education is seen as the path to success. So they might push a kid. Somebody told me the other day, their first words in English were Ivy League. Oh, because my. her parents, you know, really wanted her to excel wanted, academically. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of black parents instill in their kids, like, you have to be better. You know, you yeah. have to be better. And the evidence bears that out around unconscious mm-hmm. bias. But, you mm-hmm. know, none of those reasons matter when you're a kid because for you, praise is like oxygen. But other kids don't get much praise, and that can be confusing. And there's mm-hmm. many reasons why, you know, good parents might not praise a kid. And then some kids get a little too much oxygen. Right. You know, where right. they're told everything they do is remarkable. So family yeah. messages, I think, is important. But I mm-hmm. also find psychologists and psychiatrists, they tend to focus almost exclusively there. And I just, I don't think we, we don't exist in a vacuum. You know, there's other things going on. People mm-hmm. in certain um, occupations seem to be more mm-hmm. prone. People in the STEM fields, you know, rapidly changing information dense fields where you feel like you have to keep up and no human could. Yeah, People in yeah. creative fields, actors, you know, uh, Maya Angelou, Tom Hanks, you know, Tina Fey, writers, actors, you know, who are being judged by subjective standards. Um, certain organizational cultures fuel self-doubt, one of them being higher education. Right, right. And, it, and it's, it's not just students who feel like imposters. It, it's faculty and also um, staff who are the poor stepchildren mm-hmm. on campus. Yeah. You know, and you're, when you're surrounded by highly educated people, there's just these aspects of the academy that itself can fuel self-doubt. Similarly, medicine will be another you know, example of that. Um, and, you know, I think whenever you're in a group for whom there are stereotypes about competence or intelligence or there's not a lot of you or you're the first one, there's that kind of pressure to represent, then you're going to also be more susceptible to imposter syndrome. That could be women. That could be people of color, um, individuals with, with disabilities, People for whom English is not their first language. Yeah. You know, I've spoken over 100 universities around the world, mostly to graduate students and um, medical students. And I can tell you, Dr. Perkins, the biggest group to always come are the international students, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think makes perfect sense. They've got the same pressures everyone else has, but they're doing it in another culture and often in, a, in another language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine, um, in, in addition to... Um, things like depression and anxiety that happen uh, is just a stressful way to exist. And so um, when I think about um, what might be some of the feelings, um, you know, I find myself coaching people to, um, to, you know, go through um, a series of steps and just say, what are all the things that I've accomplished and I'm good at? And that that mm-hmm. that support the decision, you know, for them to hire me or for them to um, uh, to give me tenure or whatever. And and I, I never will forget um, 
and, and, and for some people, it just doesn't matter. Um, I never forget I had a um, someone that was on the faculty. I was a department chair, and um, I just wanted to talk this person into giving up some of um, the responsibilities that she had. And and it w- at one point, we were down a number of people in the faculty, and so everybody was taking on more work. And, mm-hmm. and so when we hired, we hired like three people at once. And so like, finally we can offload some things. So I went to, so having this meeting and I had one person and I said, so, but, and intentionally I went through all, I said, let's list all the things that you're doing. And when we got to 18 things within i'm not joking i i remember this like it was yesterday when we got to 18 i said okay that's a good place for us to stop look at all these things you're doing there are three things i think i'd like to give to other people that we've just hired and here's why and i had all these reasons why and i thought just listing them out and letting her see all the things that she was doing would suggest a i can take a break but when I tried to take them away, it was, what am I doing so wrong that you wanted to take those from me? And it was mm-hmm. like, I gave you the exact opposite message. So, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, I don't know if, you know, in terms of my strategy, there may have been a better strategy out there. I don't know, which leads me to my next point or question is, what do you do if people are are working so hard to be, to feel like they are making a contribution and are afraid of being seen as, you know, not successful or not pulling their load or any of those things, but feel that they, they have to do more and more and more. Um, How do you help them? Because I think in some ways it's a, it's a manifestation of this syndrome of, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to, trying to do more. So how do we help them, um, you know, be successful. Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. I think part there's two parts to that. One part is, you know, I don't know this individuals, but I would wonder: is there a social context for why they were defining success as being just kind of superhuman, you know, and right. and having to take on more and, and do more? Kind of going back to that, you know, you have to be better right to prove yourself so is there that social context and whether there is or not i think a core reason why people feel like imposters i mean i talked about the organizational culture and occupation and situational factors um family dynamics and so on but the core reason is we have this unrealistic unsustainable notion about what it means to be competent Mm-hmm. But we don't we don't all kind of exaggerate that the same way. There's of course the perfectionist, which you hear about all the time around imposter syndrome. But there's the person I call the expert, which is yep. essentially the knowledge version of the perfectionist. Mm-hmm. For for that person, it's not so much about the quality of their work. It doesn't mean that's not important. But for them, it's about the quantity of knowledge and information that they know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? In their mind, they feel like they can never know enough. So you see this with graduate students all the time. There's always one more book to read, one more class to take, one more degree to get. You know, this endless yeah. pursuit of the end of knowledge. Sure. The natural genius, uh, the person I call the natural genius, doesn't mean they are a genius or they think they're a genius. But somehow they got it into their head that if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, this wouldn't be this hard. The fact that they might have to struggle to understand something or master something, 
or, or a particular course, in their mind, proves they must be an imposter. Because mm-hmm. they're defining yes. confidence as being about ease and speed, like hitting awesome. the ground running, picking it up immediately. Absolutely. Uh, you know, come, it, coming out of the womb, knowing how to do advanced calculus or you know, how to write a dissertation or <laughs> right, you know, right. write, how to submit a paper for a publication. Yeah. Uh, the soloist, as it sounds, they think they have to do it all by themselves. If somebody helps them, it doesn't count. They're not going to go get yeah. tutoring or coaching because that would be an admission that they must be an imposter. But the person you were describing, I'm, I'm wondering, Dr. DePerk, if they fall into what I call the superhuman, mm-hmm. who not only expects themselves to excel either you know, academically or in terms of their work, but in all their different aspects of their life outside of work, parent, partner, you know, friend, and so on, or just expects that they should be able to juggle an enormous number of balls at the same time, but also do them all you know, to the highest degree of, of excellence. Which is yeah, kind of like expecting yourself to be the star pitcher, the star batter, the star base runner, you know, no, right, the right, time. right. And I run across that a lot. Um, I, I tell people I have a lot of people that I that have been students or doctoral students, and they, if there's any such thing as a triple A type personality, there, mm-hmm. that's what they would be. Is that um, it has to be right. It has to be perfect. But going back to what you just said, I, I laughed because that was exactly, I was giving some advice to someone who was a um, brilliant um, um, undergrad, um, did, mm-hmm. you know, really, really well in a tough major, tough school, and then was trying to decide what to do, graduate school, medical school, whatever, you know, what what am I going to do? And then so um, I was trying to help, you know, saying, okay, let's look back at your strengths and, and um, talk about those. And, and what I got was, um, well, but I'm just really not good at anything. And I said, what do you mean? You're about to graduate, you know, summa cum laude in your program, mm-hmm. and you're saying you're not good at anything. And the response I got was, yeah, but I had to work really hard. And so mm-hmm. it is exactly what you, you said. So, I mean, it, it's almost verbatim that somehow if I were good at it naturally, then that would mean that I'm, I'm, I'm who I, I say I am. But because I've struggled, you know, maybe I had to study harder than other people, but I still got an A, but I, I, mm-hmm. it's somehow less than those that didn't have to work as hard. Absolutely. And unfortunately, there are some places where that gets reinforced. I, I read an article, mm. I don't know if it was in the Chronicle Higher Ed, but somewhere about, I think it was Stanford Engineering Department, there were a certain group of students who would compete for who could study the least, which is just a horrible message oh, to send. Yeah. It reinforces this yeah. idea like, oh, I'm so smart, I don't have to study. Well, good mm-hmm. for you, but I really do have to study. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was a young man who came up to me. Uh, I was speaking at the Cornell University Men of Color in STEM Symposium. young man came up to me, and he said, you know, Dr. Young, I'm confused about this coping mechanism around overworking, overpreparing. He said, I'm from Chicago, didn't go to a good school system. I'm here at Cornell competing with kids who went to good schools, by and large. I feel like I have to work harder. And my response to him was, no, you're right. You do have to work harder. But what he was describing was adaptive didn't come from a good school system, now he's got to make up for it. He did have to work harder. But what I was referring to is this sense that the only reason you're successful is you have to work harder to to cover up for your kind of supposed ineptness. Mm -hmm. 
which is not at all that you know not at all the case for him yeah absolutely absolutely and so i know that you have uh tell us a little bit about your book i know you've won awards for this book uh the secret thoughts of successful women and uh subtitled why capable people suffer from imposter syndrome and how to thrive in spite of it just give us a sneak of like what what do you how do you uh advise people to thrive what what what's one piece of advice you'd give someone about how they should thrive in in spite of having uh, uh suffering sometimes from imposter syndrome yeah and, and I'm glad you said people because I really hate the title of my book you know it's not about quote unquote successful women and certainly mm-hmm. there's a lot of men who also feel like imposters I would actually give them two two pieces if I could one is okay. to normalize imposter syndrome you know, by understanding the kind of perfectly good reasons why you or others might feel like an imposter. In other words, I want people to do less personalizing and more contextualizing. I see. To understand either they're in an organizational culture that where everybody it really fuels self-doubt, or they're first generation in their family to go to college, or they're in this you know rapidly changing information dense field like you know medicine or, or STEM. To, so to to look at the reasons, so when they have a normal imposter moment, they can kind of hit the hit the pause button, zoom out, get the bigger mm-hmm. picture, and go, well, of course yep. I feel this way. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. I make it less about them? Yeah. But also to recognize that people who don't feel like imposters, and I mean, again, not the smartest guy in the room, narcissist, but the, somebody who is humble. I call them humble realists. Somebody yeah. who is genuinely humble but has never felt like an imposter, they're no more intelligent, capable, competent. It's just in the exact same situation where we feel like an imposter, they're thinking different thoughts. And it's not a pep talk, right? You, you've got this, and you can do it, and you deserve to be here. All of which are true, but aren't going to move the needle in any lasting way. Because mm-hmm. people who are humble, realists, they think differently about competence. They have a realistic understanding of competence. They have a healthy response to failure, mistakes, and constructive criticism, and yeah. a healthy understanding of fear and self-doubt. And they understand it kind of goes with the territory. So it's about again, it's all all about kind of pushing that pause button when when you, when you have a uh, you know an imposter response, become consciously aware of what is the conversation going on in my head right now, and how would somebody who is humble, but has never felt like an imposter, how would they reframe this exact same thing? Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you. That's very very helpful. So listen, I mean, as I told you, um, you know, we we are. Um, going to the time was going to go by really fast. We're already um, out of time. There are people that are listening in and will listen who are tuning in from all over the world. So um, share with us any um, any uh, website or or social media handle uh, that people can follow because I just based on the number of emails and 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 messages that I've received, I know there's a lot of interest in this. And which I would imagine there are people who feel that they they uh, have have suffered from this. So um, please let let us know how we can follow you and and continue to watch uh, the work that you're doing. Um, any email addresses, anything you have. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's pretty easy because uh, uh, my domain is impostorsyndrome.com, dot com, which I've had since nineteen ninety five. I've been doing this for a while. Sure. Um, you know, I, I'm of course on LinkedIn. Um, you know, Valerie Young or Imposter Syndrome Institute is also on LinkedIn. Okay. Excellent. And I'm Excellent. sure I'm on Twitter and Facebook. I just don't spend a whole lot of time there. A lot of time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, look again. I want to thank you uh, for the conversation, and I'm sure everyone that's been eavesdropping on us today. 
uh, learned a lot because I, I really benefited and you added to me today. So um, I'm going to keep listening and watching, um, looking for you because people post you on YouTube when you speak. So I'll be, I might not be able to get to some of those uh, faraway places where you've been, um, but I'll, I'll be sure to listen in on, uh, on YouTube. So just, uh, I want to, uh, encourage you to keep up the, the great work and the research and work that you're doing, bring awareness to, uh, this and the advice that you've been giving. Um, and hopefully, uh, we'll, our paths will cross. Um, and I so, hope so but too. Until, thank you so much. Yeah. Until then, go well, stay well. <laughs> <laughs>